Hola, Joshua Smizer de Leon here, founder and host of the Basel podcast. Thanks for listening to the show where we highlight stories by, from, and about the Puerto Rican community from La Isla to the diaspora. If you want to help us share the diverse and vibrant stories that make up the Puerto Rican communities here on Basel, Boricua, and Chicago and around the world, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. Subscribing helps more people find the show and will help you make sure you never miss an episode. Leaving a five-star rating and showing some love in the comments helps too. You can also give a donation by looking up the Basel podcast on savechicagomedia.org. Okay, that's enough from me. Enjoy the show. Hola, mi gente. And welcome to a special bonus episode of the Basel Podcast. Longtime listeners will know that these episodes pop up from time to time whenever we either have a guest on who is not Puerto Rican or we want to share a good conversation or announcement from an organization in the Puerto Rican community. In this bonus episode, we're going to share a Facebook Live panel discussion from our friends at Power for Puerto Rico. The topic of discussion is on the state of the U.S. colonies. So what you're about to hear is a discussion with leaders, scholars, and activists from American Samoa, Guam, Puerto Rico, the Northern Mariana Islands, and the U.S. Virgin Islands on the major challenges these colonies face and how to be an ally in struggles for land rights, food sovereignty, and a whole lot more. The panelists you're going to hear in this episode include John Gonzalez, president of the Northern Marianas Descent Corporation and member of the Second Marianas Political Status Commission, Melissa Mark Viverito, chief policy officer for the Puerto Rican Cultural Center here in Chicago, Tiana Naputi, Mellon ACLS Scholars and Society Fellow with Independent Guajan, Summer Sibley Brown, founder and executive director of Virgin Islands Good Food Coalition, and Chief Maluse Doris Tulifau, founder of Brown Girl Woke and American Samoa and Samoa. The panel moderator is independent journalist Bianca Graulau. Let's jump right into it. Welcome, everyone. Uh, bienvenidos. Hafaela, thank you for, for joining us. Um, as the world focuses on the illegitimate annexation of other nations, the U.S. needs to come to grips that it too is unoccupying military power holding five island colonies. The U.S. is denying the peoples of these occupied nations the right to freely determine their own destinies, which is what self-determination is all about, and that is what we are here today to discuss. So which colonies are we talking about, and how did they come to come under U.S. sovereignty? I'll go through a quick uh, rundown of the five territories, how they came to be acquired by the United States, a real quick summary of their relationship as a territory to the U.S., and I'll introduce our, our moderator. So really quickly, uh, in 1898, after the Spanish-American War, uh, Puerto Rico and Guam were invaded by the U.S. and uh, came under U.S. sovereignty, along with Cuba, the Philippines, and other territories. Um, shortly after, in 1900, uh, America Samoa became a territory, according to the U.S., because they were ceded um, by the uh, Tutulia uh, local chiefs, um, but that's how they, they came into uh, U.S. sovereignty. Later in 1917, the same year that Puerto Rico, uh, the Puerto Ricans became U.S. citizens, um, the United States purchased uh, the, the Virgin Islands, or three of those Virgin Islands that are now the U.S. Virgin Islands, um, from, the Danish, from Denmark, from the Danish government. Um, later, uh, after World War II, uh, the United Nations set up the Pacific Trust Territory, administered 
um, by the United States. And at the time, the territories that were administered um, by the trust were the Marshall Islands, that now has a free association relationship with the United States, the Caroline Islands, uh, the Palau Islands, that also have a uh, free association compact with the US, uh, the Northern Marianas, which is now a Commonwealth, and the Micronesian Islands, except for Guam, uh, which also have a free association compact with the US. Um, and so that's the that's how these territories came about. Before I turn it over to our moderator really quickly, what are the differences between the statuses of each territory? Uh, Puerto Rico uh, was a territory and became officially US Commonwealth in 1952 after a constitutional process ratified by the people and the United Nations. Some allege that after the PROMESA uh, law that imposed the fiscal control board, that compact was violated. Um, similar situation with the, comp with the compact uh, or the covenant signed by the Commonwealth of the Northern Marian Islands, um, which was instituted in 1975. And maybe some of our speakers can uh, talk about whether that has been uh, violated or not. Um, Puerto Rico uh, is actually part of the United States Customs Zone, which we can't say um, about Guam or USVI. Um, and American Samoans, uh, unlike the inhabitants of the other territories, are not United States citizens, and are in fact uh, United States nationals, um, which is basically a distinction without a difference except for some basic uh, rights, and we'll let our panelists discuss that. Overall, uh, these are unincorporated uh, US territories subject to the territorial clause of the United States Constitution. And as interpreted by the Supreme Court of the United States, these peoples are owned by, and I'm quoting, but not a part of the United States, and, go, and again, quoting, the U.S. Supreme Court has said that they are foreign in a domestic sense. So how does this affect real people's lives? Um, that's what we're here to find out. Before I turn it over to our moderator, I want to give a special thanks uh, to Matt McKenna for his support with the promotion and also the, the designing of the several flyers we sent out. So thank you, Matt. And our good friend, Christina Robinson, um, who's currently behind the scenes and making sure that everything runs smoothly. So gracias, Christina. And let me turn it over to our uh, distinguished moderator who will introduce the panelists. Uh, Bianca Gralau is an independent journalist uh, from Puerto Rico. She's been covering all sorts of issues uh, from gentrification, um, colonial settlement, and of course, uh, the political status of the islands. So here to introduce our panelists and to kick it off is Ms. Bianca Gralau. Thank you very much. Hello. Thank you very much, Federico. Muchas gracias. I'm very excited to be part of this conversation. I myself am learning about U.S. colonialism in the different territories, and I am seeing those similarities between Puerto Rico and all the other territories slash colonies. So I'm grateful for this opportunity to learn more from our panelists. I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to the panelists so they can introduce themselves. And I'm going to start with Fiara Napati from Guam. Buenas and half a day, Guahusi Tierra Napati, Familian Kadaronzan Robatsu. I'm speaking to you here from Guahan, where the political status of unincorporated territory was imposed by the United States. I'm also a professor at the University of California, Irvine, in the Department of Global and International Studies. And this year, I'm working on a project as a Mellon ACLS Scholars and Society Fellow here in Guahan, working with the community organization Independent Guahan. We are a group that empowers our Chamorro people to reclaim our sovereignty and as a nation. And of course, we're inspired by the strength of our ancestors and the love of future generations to, to think about how to educate and unify all who call our island home to be able to build a sustainable and a prosperous independent future. 
So I've been working here with the Marianas um, community for, for over a decade. I have previously testified at the United Nations Special Political and Decolonization uh, Commission or Committee, excuse me, on Guam's political status. I am um, really excited to be here and join all these other folks uh, from across the different uh, areas because it's an important conversation for us to have about our connections around issues uh, that my research also addresses, like militarism, um, colonialism, not just in the Mariana Islands, but also through the U.S. empire. And I'm really committed to advocacy and work with our indigenous communities and protectors who are addressing not just environmental justice, but also self-determination and sovereignty that we also desperately need. So, Sidzu Usmaasi, thanks for having me. Thank you, Tiara. So now we're going to go with Melissa and Mark Viverito from Puerto Rico. Buenas noches a todas, a todos y a todes. Eh, I'm Melissa Mark Viverito, uh, born and raised uh, in Puerto Rico, now residing in New York City. I have been a community activist basically my whole life and having worked on the struggles to get the Navy out of Vieques, Puerto Rico, the uh, freedom of our Puerto Rican political prisoners, having served in elected office here in New York City for 12 years as a council member, uh, also as speaker of the New York City Council. My whole life has been about raising the voices of Puerto Rico, of really raising awareness and visibility. I am currently now working with the Puerto Rican Cultural Center based in Chicago, Illinois, that works with the Puerto Rican diaspora in Chicago, uh, but has really worked actively right, on issues of self-realization, self-actualization of the Puerto Rican people. Uh, I'm very proud to be here at this forum to learn from all of the panelists. I'm excited uh, to really be able to speak on issues that matter, the issue of sovereignty, the issue of self-determination uh, from the context of Puerto Rico. So uh, thank you for the invitation to Powerful Puerto Rico. Uh, of which the Puerto Rican Cultural Center is also a member. So, buenas noches a todos. Look forward to the conversation. Gracias, Melissa. Now we're going to go with Chief Doris Tulifau from American Samoa. Hello, everyone. My name is Melissa Doris Tulifau. I'm a founder of Brown Girl Woke, an organization that makes sure that brown voices are heard, especially from both countries, American Samoa and Samoa. I've been doing this work for 20 years. I'm based in California, American Samoa and Samoa, the only youth advocacy group that um, makes sure that our kids are woke and understand uh, what's happening in our backyard to be to make sure that, like we're talking today, self-determination and what we need to um, scream at the top of the hill in the United States to make sure they see us and hear us. Again, I've been doing this work for 20 years and I'm excited. Um, this is probably the first time I ever sat down with this US territories, uh, women and men doing the same work, which this is a great movement and a great time to be together and to their strength in numbers. So thank you again to uh, Power Puerto Rico for allowing me to be in this space. Thank you. Now we're going to go with John Gonzalez from the Northern Marianas. Uh, half a half a half a day. Uh, I'm, I'm a bit excited too. Amaga uh, umogaan, our ancient greeting in Samoru for good morning, and our other indigenous, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, group is the uh, Carolinians. Tirowami lesarumama ingalihami. Guahu ilahin mizu. John Oliver de los Reyes Gonzalez, one Bolis, a family, family, and Bolis, when he is a Saipan, and my destructor, no 
Palacio Sablan, si Tatao Biu, Gininas Nanao, si Nanao Hubia, si Lucien Bolis. Si Tatao Matuginin Filipinas, he came, immigrated to the Marianas in the mid-60s after the destruction of Typhoon Jean. And so he came on to assist, rebuild our awesome islands we call home, our cultural homeland. Islander by heart, blood, and soul. Northern Marianas descent, Pacificana, blue continent uh, citizen, indigenous Samoro mother, immigrant Filipino father, oldest of seven sons, and the proud father of two, three sons, uh, Matua, Magalahi, and uh, Magas, uh, two of whom the older ones are the US Coast Guard Academy. And in that vein, I speak with reverence and respect to our political ally, the United States. And in my mind, absolute sovereignty does not mean that we uh, should relinquish our timeless, decades, millennial generation old connection, irreparable connection, uh, unequivocal connection, unconditional, inseparable connection to our land, water, sea, and air. I look forward to speaking today with our alliance of blue continent Pacificanas so that we can raise our voices and educate our fellow brethren across uh, the world and in the United States because the policies, the, the, the predicaments, and the perspectives uh, are in limbo because if they don't understand, they cannot be educated and formed to make those uh, lasting, uh, mutually beneficial. Decisions that would benefit all of us. Sisus masi za gundispeto dan saludo bayu ekungok lo bayuentus za bayu defendi, and I will defend the the right of indigenous ownership to our cultural homeland. Sisus masi. Thank you, John. And lastly, we have Summer Sibeli Brown from the U.S. Virgin Islands. Good evening, everyone. Such an honor to be on this panel with all of you. I live in the U.S. Virgin Islands, which is the indigenous lands of the Kalinago, Carib, Taino, and Arawakan-speaking people. But I am a descendant of the West African enslaved who was born here. So I stand here tonight on their shoulders um, to share with you a little bit about my experience. I born and raised in the Virgin Islands. I run, I founded and I run an organization called Virgin Islands Good Food Coalition, which works on food security, sovereignty, and sustainability. I am the first non-contiguous chair of the National Farm to School Network. Um, I've had the privilege of testifying two years ago, actually, um, to Congress to the Committee of Biotechnology, Horticulture, and Research on the impacts of USDA's policies on, on local agriculture. Um, I am an advocate for the health, wellness of my people. So very recently I worked with a three other nonprofits to advocate for healthcare after it rained oil um, from a refinery here. And so like my fellow panelists, I share a passion for the freedom, health, and the rights of um, colonial citizens to self-determine and to have access to have access to a hundred generations of health, sovereignty, and security. Thank you. 
Thank you to all the panelists. So we're going to get right into the issues that uh, the territories are seeing as a result of colonialism. And I want to start with Tiara from Guahan to talk a little bit about how residents of Guam have been resisting the construction of a U.S. military site. We know that the reason they oppose this is because it threatens your water supply and because some of the actions the U.S. military has already been taking. Uh, some Guam residents believe that it has already been desecrating indigenous sites that are sacred to the people of Guam. Can you paint a picture for us about what this struggle looks like and what actions the U.S. military has already taken um, and also how the people of Guam are resisting. Sure, thank you so much for that opportunity. And um, I'm sharing a screen with a couple of images as I talk today, but this first one is because we are situated here in Guahan in the unincorporated territory, as I mentioned, this status was imposed and it has some really big impacts. The first of which that I'll talk about, um, maybe two of them, um, is that what's being carried out right now is considered desecration and contamination by the US military without our pre, prior and informed consent. So one of the military consequences or one of the biggest many consequences, I should say rather, of US colonial uh, rule today is the impact of our lands on um, that it's having from the military. So right now, if we think about it, the US military is the largest polluting entity on the planet. And in this image, we can see that the US Department of Defense actually occupies 30% or nearly one third of our island. Um, so what that means is actually during the global pandemic, they have not decreased their footprint or blueprint, they've actually increased it. And ramping up the construction here is uh, part of a massive military buildup that's actually moving from Okinawa to not just Guahan, but also throughout the Mariana Islands. And so just one of the examples that I'll talk about with regard to the desecration uh, before I get into contamination is the Marine Corps base Camp Bloss. Camp Bloss and a live fire training range complex are being built as we speak. Um, and this buildup is responsible for desecration of our uh, sacred historical and ancestral sites that are, of course, it's culturally significant to us as, as a peoples, but also just very important to us um, to have as, as our record for time immemorial and our connections to our, our people, our land, our air and our and our water. So the destruction of the live fire training range over Latexan village is one site. Um, and another site is an ancient village called Magwak. Both of these together is 1,200 acres of our homeland, as large as 900 football fields in size that continue to be destroyed and desecrated without our consent of our community. So one of the organizations um, that I put their handle on here, protect They've put together these Google Earth images. They're also working tirelessly against this desecration. These images show, unfortunately, the devastating destruction of some of these sites. Um, these ancestral sites have been haphazardly and disrespectfully um, uh, discovered, um, what is the term that the military is using at these construction sites. They're essentially disturbing and desecrating places where our ancestors live. And so a question I'd like our viewers to have on their minds, if the people, especially those living in the continental United States, is would you be willing to put up with a firing range right next to uh, a most hollowed ground like the Arlington National Cemetery? This is the equivalent of what they're doing right now with the destruction at our ancestral sites. Um, the development of the military's camp loss and for this firing range here at Latexan, you can see with this image as well, is showing that it's not only disturbing our ancient Chamorro cultural sites, these sacred artifacts have been destroyed or removed without our pre, prior, and informed consent. 
So when we get into this issue of desecration, we're talking about much more than just land. It's very difficult to see these images because we consider um, these connections to be so important to be part of us. It's also important to realize that with that um, desecration comes contamination. So I'll speak about that a second. Um, the US military buildup is constructing this live firing range that's threatening our clean water. The Guam um, aquifer, our primary fresh water resource, the Northern Guam Lens Aquifer, supplies 85 to 90% of our fresh drinking water. And that operation of the firing range that they're planning will actually entail the, the firing of 6.7 million bullets a day, which is roughly the equivalent of 18,000, or excuse me, 6.7 million bullets annually. So that's the break it down. That's about 18,000 bullets a day being fired right near our fresh water resource. These bullets are not benign, okay? They contain uh, lead, chemicals, heavy um, contaminants that obviously can leach into the air and the water. And the military also plans to drill even more. Beyond what you see in these images, um, the military has plans to drill 11 more wells that would support the incoming military personnel from Okinawa. Um, and what it would potentially do is also cause saltwater intrusion and overpumping of our already strapped resources. So the U.S. military being both the world and the nation's biggest polluter, um, much of which, you know, these hazardous wastes and these materials they've left behind, um, they've, they've never cleaned up. And unfortunately with that, that comes with the form of things like Agent Orange, PCBs, PFOS. These are all considered forever chemicals. And so in Guahan, we're already dealing with this contamination, right? We're also dealing with this desecration and these things are threatening our public health. So we have things like Superfund sites here in Guam, which uh, are considered by the US Environmental Protection Agency as the most toxic lands. And these are places that were toxic um, and hazardous because of the US military, and they still haven't cleaned them up. All right. This January, just earlier this um, this last month, um, many of our indigenous Chamorro community groups, such as Protehi Latexan, uh, filed a lawsuit with Earth Justice to challenge um, another uh, plan coming from the buildup that we're concerned about in terms of contamination, which is the U.S. Air Force plans to do open burn, open detonation. And those things are things that they're planning on doing again on ancestral lands. These are lands that the military seized after World War II from Samoro families. And they will burn and detonate as part of their plans, something like 35,000 pounds of bombs and other hazardous materials and waste munitions, all in, out in the open, really close, nearly 200 feet um, from the Pacific Ocean is where they're planning on doing this. So I bring up the second point of contamination, but I want it to be recognized as something that's connected to the desecration because this, these plans are just the most recent iteration of things that we have been dealing with for over a decade. Um, these are operations that would release toxic chemicals and unexploded ordnance directly into the surrounding ocean, air, well, in land, of course. Um, the list of U.S. military contamination, unfortunately, doesn't just end here. And I know as other panelists are going to talk about, we could think about this in other places throughout Micronesia, Oceania, the Caribbean. But really, it's also about recognizing that together these issues come about because of the political status. The colonial political status for Guahan is at the root of this problem. It allows for militarization, desecration, and contamination without our pre, prior, and informed consent. 
uh, we really do need genuine security. We really need to be talking about self-determination and sovereignty, not militarization. And that's one of the things that I think is so um, helpful about these, these groups that are um, organizing, right? Like I mentioned, I'm working with Independent Guahan, and I put their handle here, um, as well as their website, independentguahan.org, to just mention these organizations because them, as along with other groups that are here, Protegi Latexan, Save for Tidian, and many other people here on the ground have been fighting this tireless fight to try to um, organize, educate, advocate, and of course, do direct action to continue to protect our cultural resources and to continue to allow us to have a voice to be able to act against these two things that I mentioned today. But of course, we could talk about much, much more besides just the ongoing issues of contamination and desecration. So those are the ways I would like to bring that up. And, and again, Sidus Masi for having us participate. Thank you, Tiara. We had mentioned before that uh, we see similarities between the territories. And on this issue, it rings a bell when we uh, think about Puerto Rico. Like you said, uh, the status of these territories allows the U.S. Uh, to come in and use the land for bombing practices. And we've seen that in places like Puerto Rico. Now we want to talk about uh, food. I'm going to turn it over to Summer because uh, I heard you talk, Summer, about how a place cannot have sovereignty if it cannot provide its own food for its people. So can you talk to me about what the food sufficiency uh, situation looks like in the U.S. Virgin Islands and how you believe colonialism has led to the destruction or abandonment of the local agriculture? Hi, good evening again. So one of the things that I am really passionate about, and thank you, Bianca, for bringing it up, is food is central to our consideration of sovereignty. Food is central to the health of our people in order, in order to forward and live for the hundred generations that I mentioned, right? Right now, the Virgin Islands imports about 98% of its food. On average, it fluctuates from 97 to 98. I think Puerto Rico might be in the 89 percentile. And if we go across these regions, I think that nobody is growing more than 20% of their food, right? I don't have to know anything about the other colonial possessions to know that they probably all are suffering with morbid obesity, loss of food identity, and more increasing um, imports. We sit at the end of the United States supply chain. So if the boat does not come, we don't have food. And many people, because we have convenience of grocery stores, don't realize the level of vulnerability that the territories are in. This, however, is not a situation that has started today. It's been highlighted. If we look at the colonial pattern, if we go all the way back to the very first place where we were in 1898, the Spanish-American War, food was being imported here for our colonizers. And um, the citizens then called the inhabitants were given probably small parcels of of the food that was being imported, which over time changed our palates. As we gained citizenship and got subsidizations for health and education and hospitals, and we began building grocery stores, the, US, the USA's American diet was imposed on us. Our palates were switched from what we would traditionally eat. So juca, breadfruit, plantain, right? We began to, to support our diets with rice, wheat product, um, while the food growing in some of these places were exported to support sugar needs, pineapple needs, American needs that they can send to a larger 
market, we were transitioning onto a dependency of food being brought in from America and not the highest quality or best quality food. So now we're in a place where the food that we eat, we can't grow. Our children don't recognize black sapote, um, tanya, yam. These are like specialty foods that their palates don't suit, right? They want rice, big macaroni and cheese. Um, they want we don't make tomato sauce in the Virgin Islands, right? There was a time where our tomato sauce or the stews would come from achote and um, things that were available to us. We have now been, our palates have been brainwashed to desire food that doesn't come from here. And if we are going to ever consider separating ourselves from our colonizers, one of the things we have to consider is what percent of our food can we grow? What are the regional relationships necessary? How do we keep, again, groundwater? How much fresh water supply does an 84 square mile island have to support the growing? What is the appropriate land management practices in order to keep the land healthy to grow over time? Right. What is the currency of exchange? What will be the rate of at which we pay for food? Because in this day and age, people need shelter water, food, energy, healthcare, right? Like basics. Those things don't have to be exchanged with the US dollar. But most people aren't thinking through that. So how do we separate ourselves from our colonizer if we are waiting for them to feed us? There is a power over people in the colonies and it is predicated like they are using our food as a war tactic right like when you attack a person's health and their bodies they don't it is an act of violence against us when you have 40 percent of a population that is morbidly obese that if you could look back one generation and that wasn't an issue when you have 40 percent of a population now having hypertension um cancer all of these diseases that could be related to or solved by food, but it flies under an invisible radar because it doesn't feel like an act of war because we're also inundated with the images that tell us this food, instead of it being connected to our identity, um, right, is connected to an empty act. Um, so, I mean, switching our minds and hearts from and really denying us the opportunity to hold on to our identity is a masterful way to keep us dependent and enslaved, right? People who worked on sugarcane fields, today in this age, we are still enslaved to sugar. It's just hidden in the Coke and the cereal and the ketchup, it, you know, and all the products. We are still a slave to sugar. So they just switch the shackles. They switch the way in which we interact and now it seems invisible to us. Mm -hmm. Summer, could you quickly tell us what are some of the efforts that are happening in USVI to uh, sort of challenge the ways that, that you eat locally and uh, make some progress with local agriculture and changing uh, the current? So there is a small but mighty group of local farmers and local food system advocates who have been working to uphold. One specific event is um, Bush Cook Chef Cook, where every year this annual event functions much like a fair, but everything prepared is 100% sourced locally. All of the ways they're cooking are invented and created. So, you know, we've seen chefs use engines, like old engine parts, um, to prepare a rabbit. We've seen people dig 
holes in the ground to roast breadfruit, but it's really showing the people of the Virgin Islands that it is possible for us to eat 100% local. Another event is um, it's a Bush Skills courses. There are two Bush Skills courses. I want to shout out Nate and I want to shout out Matt, helping people remember how to weave, how to make fire, how to cook, you know, how to cook in open gourds. And so the effort has been struggling to maintain that 2%. And I consistently see our local government and the U.S. government deny us the right to have appropriate infrastructure to actually expand on our food situation. Like if we can put a man on the moon, right? If we can have satellites that can pick up this conversation, water infrastructure, um, drip irrigation tape, those things aren't far-fetched but somehow they don't exist, right? And the masses, because of convenience, don't see the danger of not having access. Literally one ship, warfare, one ship could come in here with all of our food poisoned and everybody would cease to exist. Thank you so much, Summer, for uh, that information and putting that into perspective for us. Now I wanna to turn to the topic of Puerto Rico. Um, with Melissa. Could you tell us, Melissa, uh, how you see colonialism play out in the issue of high cost of living for Puerto Ricans at the same time that they have low wages? And on top of that, incentives that invite people to move to Puerto Rico, a lot of times newcomers that have more buying power than the locals. How do you connect that to colonialism? I want to thank you for, for, um, for, to Summer and to Tiara, because as you're speaking, right, I think we obviously have very unique experiences geographically and where we come from, but there's so much uh, that we share in common, right, when we talk about your experience about the militarization and the issues and challenges of food sovereignty. Um, you know, and when we talk about the, this panel and the title of, you know, what is the state of the U.S. colonies, right, I, it, what comes to mind is it's untenable, right, the situation is dehumanizing. Uh, and yesterday I was, and, and trying to contextualize it, right? Yesterday I was watching TV as we all are kind of riveted by what's happening on Russia invasion of Ukraine and the UN ambassador uh, to the United Nations, you know, got up at around noon, she made a speech on the floor and part of her speech, and I want to read it just very quick, was a sentence because this is 2022. We are not going back to an era of empires and colonies. We have moved forward and we must ensure, as the permanent representative from Kenya said in the Security Council on Monday night, that the embers of dead empires do not ignite new forms of oppression and violence, right? Um, so for many of us that are in this space of activism, who have been fighting on behalf of our rights as Puerto Ricans and all of us here on this panel um, to our self-determination, uh, those of us that are in this struggle, there are certain words that trigger us, right? When we, when we hear the words um, that elicit kind of visceral reaction, colonialism, sovereignty, imperialism, empire, we're hearing those words kind of being thrown around. Um, so when the ambassador uses that language, you know, my response is, well, hey, what about us, right? And, and the reality that we're living, we're not uh, living in embers of dead empires, right? We are living it right now. We are living within an empire. Um, so I think it also brings up the question of like, what does colonialism look like in 2022, right? Because as people, um, colonialism evolves, uh, but the colonies is always served and colonies, right? Have always served as 
testing grounds, have always served as captured markets, right? And, and we are markets. That's why we don't grow our own food because we're not consumers and seen as consumers, right, of the products that the colonizer produces. And so we are engaged in that dependence, right? And um, we are hidden, so to speak, as, as colonies. Viral um, for Puerto Rico had a panel a couple of months ago with the author uh, of a book called How to Hide an Empire. I mean, if you do a Google search and you put map of the United States, you don't see the colonies at all. And that is literally a way of hiding us. The ignorance that people don't know that we exist. People don't know um, the colonies that the United States has and, and our tenable, untenable situations, right? And what greater symbol of that colonial relationship than the fiscal control board that was imposed uh, by congressional fiat, right? It was imposed. This is an unelected board. Uh, these are people um, that have been selected by Congress to make decisions on behalf of Puerto Rico and Puerto Ricans. And uh, in not being elected, they still right, dominate. What they say trumps and supersedes uh, what the local elected officials themselves and the legislatures have to say. So that is, you can't get much more of a strong signal than that fiscal control board, right? Um, the United States refused to guarantee the debt of Puerto Rico, right? And as such, what they decided to do was impose this board that is made up of seven representatives. Um, and so some of the, the issues, there's austerity measures. They really have been set up and their prime purpose is to pay back Wall Street, right? The bondholders, the vulture funds, that is their primary focus. So with that comes a disinvestment in our public educational system. We have seen an incredible number of schools closing. Uh, we have seen a disinvestment, heavy disinvestment in our public higher education system, which is an incredible uh, crown jewel, right? Uh, in the Caribbean and also in Puerto Rico in terms of the future of our island. Um, we have seen now that we are gonna see uh, electricity costs have, have gone up. Uh, we have to import a lot of our food as indicated. Uh, civil service workers have not seen an increase in their salaries in over a decade. Their pensions have been pillaged. Um, that is also something that the board has imposed. Um, so th this is the reality that we're living and that is the embodiment of colonialism is the fact that now we have no agency uh, with regards to what our future looks like. And then there's the local laws that have been imposed that also are attracting very wealthy individuals into Puerto Rico that have no interest and no relationship uh, in Puerto Rico and the Puerto Rican people that live there. They are extracting from us uh, the way that the fiscal control board is extracting from us uh, and very little that actually is being done to revitalize and to really invest in people. So that is um, what's happening. And, and the living conditions are such where, as I indicated, uh, civil service workers haven't seen an increase in salaries. Pensions have been slashed. Now you're talking and you're seeing mobilizations happening every week of different civil service workers um, it, that are protesting, right? And saying, no, 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 you have to put our interests as a people above the interests of Wall Street. Uh, there are, is absolutely um, uh, an incredible movement, which is very inspiring that people are rejecting this idea of an imposition of our future, as opposed to people saying we want agency over our future. And we've been seeing some really um, inspiring 
um, movements in face and the front of uh, in the face of this disrespect and dehumanization that is happening. So this this rejection of the idea of dependence, right, of waiting for the federal government to give a shit, right, to prioritize our basic survival and taking the power into our own hands. So you see self-sufficiency models emerging, the model of mutual aid, reclaiming the land, right, loving it, living from it. Talking about solar sovereignty, you're seeing that exemplified by Casa Pueblo in Arjuntas, uh, which is building powerful coalitions and to use that municipality as a showcase of what energy independence can look like, um, of being custodians of Mother Nature, of the, you know, of the environment. Uh, food sovereignty movements, environmental movements. So that that's what's happening. And there's a lot of examples. So um, the, the people and the protests are ones about rejecting the subjugation uh, that uh, the colonial tool, right, is demanding from us. And that's what La Junta represents. So it's making daily life impossible. It's forcing people to consider that they have no other option but to leave uh, because they're very, you know, it's about survival at this point. So I would say that those are some just examples of what people are doing to reject it. There is this about claiming uh, agency over our future and over our lands and what it means. That's our survival. Um, we'll talk more about it, I'm sure. But I, the last thing I'll say is that Nicole Hannah Jones, you know, I, I'm starting to read the 1619 book. And just in the second page of the prologue, um, you know, she says, uh, we were not actors, but acted upon. We were not contributors, just recipients. Uh, white people enslaved us and white people feed up, freed us. Black people could choose either to take advantage of that freedom or to squander it, as our depictions in the media seem to suggest so many of us were doing, right? And that is, I think, very much belongs and, and is something that we feel as colonial people and as people have been colonized. Uh, and so it's very relevant to the moment. So I want to thank you all. I look forward to the questions and the conversation. Thank you so much, Melissa. Uh, you mentioned some of the efforts. Uh, I cover those communities that are doing heroic uh, efforts and initiatives in order to provide for their neighbors, whether it be energy or food. Uh, so it's really inspiring. I Every day I'm amazed by, by the things that they can accomplish. Now I'm gonna turn it over to John to talk about the Northern Mariana Islands. Uh, John, you had talked about how you believe the U.S. has um, attempted to break the covenants that it has with the CNMI. And I want to ask you specifically about the military use of land. Uh, you mentioned pollution. You mentioned using um, some of the land that they weren't supposed to use for firing purposes. Can you tell us a little bit about how uh, this has been affecting the lives of the people in the CNMI? Bianca, and of course, I'm so honored uh, to be amongst the esteemed and um, passionate indigenous uh, no, no advocates of our respective cultural homelands. Uh, yes, uh, we look to Guam. Thank you, Sizus Maasi Tiara, Dr. Naputi, for uh, setting the stage. Uh, in what we in the Northern Mariana Islands uh, must avoid and must uh, with due diligence and in good faith. Uh, and again, in respect, you know, our culture is all about the Amistad, the Inafa Maulik. Uh, now we must respect mutually each other, in this case, the United States, but not and never 
at the expense of our, uh, you know, age-old connection to our lands, as has been alluded to by you and uh, Melissa, as well as Summer and the rest of the panel. Uh, so upon the execution of the covenant uh, that was uh, independently as sovereign nations across the table, the United States and the Northern Marianas in, in the early 70s, when uh, our founders decided to uh, dis no, negotiate uh, separately and directly with the United States, because prior to that, at the end of World War II, under the United Nations Trusteeship Agreement, we were lumped together and the United States was entrusted as a agent of trust to uh, administer us on forward uh, in hopes of the aspirations of uh, individually and respectively deciding uh, whether as an I like Micronesia or separately, which uh, was the case, uh, to uh, negotiate uh, with uh, a foreign, a, a, an independent power. And we ended up with a Commonwealth in political union with the United States through Public Law 94-241, the United States PL, Public Law, and thus became the covenant. And in that covenant, uh, it, it, it says that uh, two thirds of Tinian and uh, uh, the just a little bit of uh, acres acreage of, of the piers in Tanapak Harbor uh, will be used as staging grounds for the United States to uh, build and, and uh, uh, do training uh, strategic practices for its military defense uh, on forward because, uh, you know, the Solomon Report, I'd like to mention that to you for the record. If you have the time, look at the Solomon Report because that was a CIA classified study that was introvertedly studied uh, to be done. And it essentially says the entire part of Micronesia is a strategic uh, military uh, defense, and that's why uh, the uh, Pacific pivot for us uh, that encapsulates why the United States, despite our geographical distance, our uh, the separation by water uh, and the ocean, they, they needed to sustain us for the military defense. And that's why we're here. And so we want to learn to look to Puerto Rico, Vieques Island, uh, no, no Guam, to make sure that we prevent the atrocities, the desecration, the contamination uh, that they have encountered, that they are encountering, and that we want to avoid uh, at all costs. Lest we forget the United States has used our islands as dumping grounds for UXOs. And to this day, the United States has reneged on its moral obligation to clean our islands of uh, the, the, the military uh, no, no dump and waste and litter uh, throughout our islands. Thank you, John. Could you tell us a little bit about some of the efforts uh, happening within the Mariana Islands to sort of resist and push back? Well, uh, I'm sure you're you're all of quite familiar with the, the strategic, uh, deliberate, uh, selective, uh, you know, tactic of the United States, in this case, the Department of Defense, and and for that matter, the the State Department, U.S. State Department, uh, to try uh, to to uh, appear and uh, be authentic in offering up its its olive branch and and, and partner with us, uh, and so they promise us that they're going to consult with us pre, prior, and informed consent. The fact of the matter is, in our indigenous cultures. Putting up a CD worth of 
thousands and thousands of pages, uh, putting it up on 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 so on on online platforms uh, for people to review it without face to face consultation. This is is an insult, uh, and 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 it's a smack on the 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 authenticity of the United States. I think because our culture requires that we sit together and confer and consult and discuss and dialogue and discourse and then amicably reach a, a decision. That has never been the case in this case. The United States continues to uh, smack us with hundreds of thousands of foreign language uh, lingo uh, to confuse us beyond anyone's imagination. And I think it's it's disingenuous of the United States to continue to do that. Uh, English is third, fourth, our fifth languages. We need to at least get down uh, to the basics and confer and consult with pre, prior, and informed consent. And so many of our organizations, I am the president uh, of the Northern Marianas Descent Corporation. And uh, you know we've been conferring with uh, uh, Commonwealth, uh, the, the, the Guam folks, the, the awesome nonprofit uh, organizations in Guam, Putehi uh, Litekzan, and, and, and the, the slew of awesome uh, nationalist, uh, indigenous self-determination uh, nonprofits. Uh, we look to them, we work together. Uh, and, and that's why I think uh, on forward, number two, number three, we have fought the United States and we have sued them in the federal U.S. federal courts. And thankfully, uh, by using the NEPA for environmental justice uh, and also for the basic uh, elements of human uh, consultation, that we have been winning some, uh, 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 you know, gaining some grounds uh, by using those uh, avenues. So we, uh, again, look forward to our sisters and brothers, our Tamoru brethren in Guam, and for that matter, throughout the, the Micronesia and, and, and now on forward with this group uh, to continue to build together because it's only until we hold hands and become inseparable can we, uh, uh, number one, educate, and make uh, the United States inform and and and, and you know, um, you know, apprise them and, and make them aware. But more importantly, that we finally get the chance to truly, authentically, ingeniously exercise our right to self determination that respects our cultural, indigenous, tribal connection to our land, air, sea, and water. Thank you so much, John. Now I want to turn it over to Chief Maluseu Doris, and I want to ask about American Samoa. You had mentioned before how the healthcare system is one that is dependent on the U.S. Therefore, when funding is last, the quality of care suffers and the residents suffer. Could you tell us a little bit about what the healthcare system looks like right now in American Samoa and how you think colonialism has affected? The yes. So, um, I'm just so incredibly honored again to be on this conversation. My eyes are opening. Like I said before, like I don't, I don't think I've ever been in a discussion with all the other U.S. territories, and in that self is colonialism separating us because we're all branched in the same group. Uh, just recently, in 2019, uh, we've seen um, the slash in Medicaid. Out of all the U.S. territories, um, American Samoa uses Medicaid 70%. If you look at the other territories, it's 20, 30%. It's low compared to how much we really rely on uh, Medicaid and the US. Uh, another huge part of this is 
history and the knowledge that we're talking about today of educating us of why do we have so much NCDs? Why do we have diabetes and all these other um, diseases in our country? It's because during uh, colonialism, when U.S. came to America to take over our harbor, they imported their foods. And that's just something that Simmer was talking about. Food is something that people are not seeing that it, it's at war. Uh, the type of food they they can't they give to our countries are the food that made sure that our people had high NCDs, diabetes, um, uh, heart diseases, and um, cancer. If you see um, even the rates throughout the last 20 years, American Samoa has 90 percent um, the highest diabetes. 45 percent of that 90 percent is in children. That's scary. We're already into the next generation of our kids dying from what colonialism has done to our countries. What we also need to understand is what we've given to them, uh, to the U.S. And that's huge in my part. And that's why I want to listen to all of us of what we've given. We've given our land. We've given our people. American Samoa, for a lot of our, our next generation, when I go and speak to students, you know, in the high schools and university, don't even realize what kind of territory we are. We don't have citizenship. We're the only territory that doesn't, we're U.S. nationals. We're the highest um, ra um, race that, um, that goes into the military in the United States. That's crazy. We die sometimes more than any, any military that goes into Afghanistan, yet we can't have U.S. citizenship. Um, our people are dying from colonialism. It's just it's just a crazy time of just trying to educate and educate and educate and getting scared that the next generation is not going to understand this and not going to have the same fight. So what I leave away with everyone today is um, we need to be in these spaces where, you know, like our brother said before, we don't understand the lingo. In American Samoa, we only we have a congresswoman. That's one person at the White House that's fighting for all of this. How do we make sure that the bills that we do try to fight for, and we are fighting for um, a bill to make sure that in the next the next year that Medicaid still stays in, and we could talk about that later, that we we have a voice and we are heard. So I want to ask you a follow up question, Doris. But before I do that, I want to encourage the people watching to write whatever questions you have. Now we're going to switch the conversation a little bit to talk about what the self determination look like. And Doris, you had mentioned before you made the comparison between American Samoa and Independent Samoa, and how uh, the healthcare situation plays out differently because of their political status. Uh, can you? Uh, talk a little bit about that and also connect that to what self-determination would look like for American Samoa? Yes, um, when you think about, um, I'm not gonna say that we're lucky that we have an independent Samoa, but we can do contrast on American Samoa being taken over by America and then independent Samoa, where they make sure the system is based on the local community and making sure that we can take care of chronic diseases as in, American Samoa, they have to, they literally depend and limited on federal funds. So they have to wait until whatever American Samoa, I mean, whatever U.S. feels that they can fund certain NCDs, while we have Samoa that can make sure that they can take care of what is happening locally. Um, I'm sorry, what was the second question? I was asking you, what does self-determination look like for American Samoa? And, and that's 
and that's what we're looking for when we look at independent Samoa, that we can make sure we can take care of what's happening in the front line with our people in American Samoa and not waiting for funding or waiting for the U.S. to tell us that they'll give us 100000 for cancer, but 10000 you know, 10, for for diabetes. When we can tell them at the front line, we can see what's happening and what's needed. So um, that's what self-determination is, is us making our own systems that work and not waiting for people that see us from the top and don't, uh, they're not on the ground. Thank you so much for that. And again, uh, anyone watching, if you have any questions for any of our panelists, go ahead and write them in the chat so that we can ask them. Uh, in the meantime, I'm going to turn it over to Tiara. Could you tell us, Tiara, what this uh, uh, self-determination, what would it look like for Guahan? Yeah, thank you for this. Um, Self-determination, I think, is is really at the core of it, uh, about the exercising of uh, our people to, to choose, to choose what we want fundamentally, what course we want to chart, and um, our desired future to seize our destiny. And those are choices we're making every day. I'm inspired by the examples of these different groups on the ground and uh, the different ways that we are already educating and advocating for self-determination. But we're making these choices every day to allow people to evolve a decision of a people, a right to choose our political future that we have not yet exercised. When it comes to Guahan, we're listed as one of 17 places in the world on the United Nations non-self-governing territories list. That means 17 places in the world that have not exercised the inherent right to self-determination, to choose if we want to be politically tied or not to a place like the United States. And we've heard today all these different ways that um, the, the relationship that has been imposed upon us, the lack of self-determination has had all these cascading effects that are um, really hurting our people in terms of public health, in terms of access, in terms of even just imagining something different. And so I think self-determination looks like that, uh, that first important step to make a choice for ourselves as a people. And of course, every place has had to do this. Every place that has already done self-determination has gone through some fits and starts and growing pains. And so I want us to remember that for Guahan specifically, it doesn't mean we, we cannot accept the modern contemporary, you know, things of our world, but we can um, take that and be informed by the strength of our ancestors and be informed by the knowledge systems that we bring and to be able to chart our political path differently. And for us, of course, I think independence is, is the best option to have to have be able to make those choices on our own, to not be so dependent like we keep hearing about um, with these different examples throughout, throughout the other places that are considered colonies. Thank you, Tiara. And same question for Melissa. What does self-determination self look like for Puerto Rico? Well, I mean, you know, self-determination is about agency, right? I mean, and and we talk a lot about, okay, you know, United, uh, United States and Puerto Rico, 1898, you know, Spanish-American War, but we have been a colony for over 500 years, right? We, we haven't had the ability to exercise agency. And so self-determination is to allow us to define what our future looks like, not another option that's imposed on us by Congress, right? So right now there we are advocating for HR 2070, which is a bill in Congress sponsored by Nidia Velasquez and AOC that is a, 
about a process that is managed, controlled, defined by Puerto Ricanos, right? Um, and not something that is imposed by Congress. And so that is historic. And it is about being able to chart our future, our path, uh, what economic policies we want to enact and implement, that it is about investing in our infrastructure, uh, not disinvesting, right, in the future of a people by stripping our public institutions and our public infrastructure uh, down, you know, to, to the bones. And so that's what self-determination is about having agency. So when we have these conversations about democracy within the United States and safeguarding against authoritarianism, well, this is what we're talking about is a democratic process that allows all perspectives and all voices to be heard. And there are too many that are trying to silence that. They're trying to impose one option over another. So when you've had a people over 500 years that have not been able to exercise that agency, then we need to take our sweet time, right, by a process that allows us to really debate it, to educate ourselves, to learn about the implications of options. And as long as that takes, right, um, there's no quick fix to this. This is not about electing the prom queen and prom king, right? This is about the future of a people. Um, so it has to be very deliberative. And so H.R. 2070 is for us the pathway. And even President Biden has talked about an inclusive process for Puerto Rico. And that is the only bill that allows for that. Summer, I want to let you chime in on what self-determination looks like for USVI. But I also want to put the question out there if uh, you want to answer it, because I believe I'm pronouncing this right. Moñeca de Oro is asking, how can we as U.S. territories continue to build a coalition to advance sovereignty and the well-being of our people? So she's asking, how can there be a, co a coalition between territories um, to, to continue to address these issues? And if you want, you can also talk about self-determination. So for me, um, I, I really appreciate that question because I think conversations like this is the start to coalition building. When things go before, in my, in my opinion and experience, when things go before Congress, they are talking about what affects millions and billions. And frankly, it does not seem that it has been a priority to talk about what is happening to you know, 100,000, 300,000, maybe even a million black and brown people. But if we join our land masses and we join our populations and we join the influence of our representatives in Congress with our force behind that, that story becomes bigger. But also if we're collecting similar data together, right? If we're weaving together, what are our similarities and what is unique about each of our situations, I could bet that we could push in in the case of showing what systemic inequity looks like because our homes are the best use case, right? My leaders look just like me, yet the crime rate, the obesity rate, the non-communicable disease rates, all of those things are the same. So the system, the institutions, they're governed by something that is still oppressing people that's invisible. We And if we together can keep these conversations going, help our, help our diasporas, join us in raising voices and building visibility, and those who seek to be allies in this cause to, to push for more awareness, to make us more visible, to invite us into spaces, to sit at tables where we are welcome, that's going to be, or where we are accustomed of being. Maybe welcome, maybe unwelcome, that's an assumption. But where we have not had invitations to thus far, I think we begin 
the weaving of a stronger coalition, right? And so it starts, for me, it starts tonight. Um, I've heard mention of choice, agency, the democratic process. I stand behind everything those who went before me said, but I also want to say we are possessions. So it's removing power over, right? Like if our colonizer, our national status, our, the America really wanted to help us, they would support us in educating ourselves. They would support us in this democratic process. They would step aside and remove power over to allow for that democratic process to emerge in a way where people feel safe. When we begin to talk about status, many people get scared when we begin to talk about self-determination because it seems like all their dependency will be stripped and we'll be plummeted into poverty with no one to rescue us. And so if they were really interested, they would show longstanding support and give us the time to figure this out. Because Tiara mentioned, we may still want to be in relationship or we may not. But fear of what not being in relationship is and power over, even from some of our leaders, right? Like, what does this look like if I don't have the subsidization? We have to be able to confront that. We have to have the courage to look it in the face. Thank you so much, Summer. And we're uh, reaching our time limit here, but I want to turn over to John to also, if you want to answer the question of self-determination, but there's also a question here um, from Aaron who asked, uh, can someone speak to the ways in which colonialism has impacted the change in population and demographics? Because every, ter every territory has lost population in the last 10 years. Is this an intentional part of colonization? Can you uh, talk to that, John? Yes, uh, thank you. Uh, I, I wanted to uh, uh, intervene as well with respect to how to Moneca de Oro's uh, awesome question. And I think it, it, it really uh, uh, captures and captivates why I think this, this is awesome, by the way. So, you know, this, this alliance of uh, educational um, uh, approach forward. I participated in the uh, decolonization conference in Guahan pre-pandemic. And uh, we met uh, with Dr. Carlisle Corbin. We, ha we had our indigenous uh, representatives from Australia, from New Zealand, from Solomon Islands, uh, and, and, and just as, as many as we could get at the time uh, through uh, see the Guam's Commission on uh, Decolonization. They sponsored that. Uh, and so we all got together and I left with one, uh, I think, stra strategic opportunity for all of us is that where we are under the empire of the United States, what we can do is, is to strategically reach out to our Micronesian independent member of the United Nations, Polynesia, uh, uh, the Caribbeans, uh, Melanesia, and start with coalescing with them, with allying with them, and no, no, educating them about our collective and holistic and overarching issues, okay, about the right to self-determination. And that, I want to say for the record, that even the, that should include the Northern Marianas, because uh, where we exercised it, the manner in the United States unilaterally uh, implementing its policies as it sees fit, strategically uh, uh, to its own benefit, we also need to come back to the table and renegotiate that. And, and by the way, I'm a member of the Second Marianas Political Status Commission. So I think it behooves all of us to come together and knock on every UN member that is 
first and foremost, indigenous, like all of us. Throughout Micronesia, Micronesia alone, and Polynesia, and then Melanesia, we've got almost, gosh, 60 members. Yeah, so if we can coalesce with them and maximize uh, the framework of the United Nations, the International Court uh, in The Hague, and also the International Court on Human Rights in um, Costa Rica, I think it really helps us to do that as well. Thanks. Uh, and with respect to the second question, uh, uh, Bianca, remind me, please. Yeah, self-determination. Oh, what oh, does yeah. self-determination look like? So self-determination is exactly what has been, uh, you know, aptly uh, articulated by our colleagues here in the panel. It's to have that opportunity to finally get be treated as as a fellow human being and saying and, and truly a member of of that political family and get the chance to say what is it that you want educate our people and that the United States, I think, is morally obligated to offer that us, us that opportunity because by working together ingeniously and authentically and honestly together, I think it's going to be a win-win for all of us. And I feel for Puerto Rico with millions of, of, of our brethren in Guahan with hundreds of thousands of residents in the Virgin Islands uh, and in American Samoa, we need to have that seat on the table and finally get the chance to write this wrong that has been systemically uh, practiced and uh, deliberately you know, uh, done by the United States. Thank you. And I see one more question here. Uh, this one is from Tobias, and this is for Tiara from Guahan. He asked, what are the Asian Chamorro institutional systems you would implement to an independent Guam government today? I'll repeat that if that didn't make sense. I think um, I think I understand some of that question about the the ancient practices from from um, uh, my point of view. I'll say that uh, there's a lot of resources that we've shared um, and a lot of other groups have been doing this work for a long time. And so um, some more reading and some more education um, can be found at the website that I mentioned for Independent Guahan. Um, it's got lots of information, but one of the things that I um, would say is that there's uh, ancient Chamorro values and practices that have been going since time immemorial um, and don't have time to get into the over 5,000 uh, year history of our, our peoples or the 500 year history of us dealing with um, different uh, colonial occupiers, um, but we can certainly talk more about those values um, that John and others have mentioned. You know, um, we can th think about Inafimalik, we can talk about um, Fanogi, we can talk about some of these other ideas like respect, um, but those are some of the things that exist um, that have been th practiced for a long time. Um, and those are some of the ways that thinking back from the matrilineal societies and structures and the institutions of decision-making and how those things were respecting our land, air, and water are all things that we can continue to and do already uh, carry forward in, in contemporary times. So I think those are some examples, but I would encourage all of the listeners um, and viewers to check out some of these organizations that we've been mentioning, particularly for the Marianas. Um, there's a lot of research that's been done in publication and um, oral histories and things like that that can really um, help uh, spread the, the information and provide more um, than I can today in a short amount of time. So, Sisi thanks for that question. Thank you, Tiara. And then and this one is for Melissa. Someone asked, how viable is the self-determination act for Puerto Rico at this point? Look, I think anything is, is viable when there's a will behind it, right? We 
were able to, despite the fact people thought we would never get our political prisoners released, right? We would, we never thought that we would, some people never thought we would get the Navy out of Vieques, Puerto Rico, right? So there is, uh, you know, historically, yes, there have been other attempts to uh, provide for legislation, but I think that we're in a different inflection point in Puerto Rico right now, right? With everything that has happened and all that we have suffered uh, most recently with the imposition of the fiscal control board, the hardships that have come, uh, the lack of seriousness and and uh, with regards to our recovery after Maria. So there is that sense of people really saying, you know what, we are going to take, right? That those movements that we talked about of sovereignty, land sovereignty, food sovereignty, et cetera. Um, I think we're at a point here where people are just fed up, right? Also with local governments that are non-responsive, that are corrupt and not being responsive to the needs of the people. So I think there's an opportunity here to really build these coalitions, um, not only within Puerto Rico, the diaspora, but beyond our communities um, to really demand that that this is the mechanism uh, by which people have to be able to define their future. So it may seem far-fetched, but I'm an optimist because I have seen us engage in other struggles, which people thought we'd never win. And there was such a will there. So we're going to keep advocating those that are listening that might be interested. Um, obviously, Powerful Puerto Rico is a coalition that I and, and the organization I'm a part of are members of. And this is one of many other issues, but the issue of, of self-determination and HR 2070 in particular and building support for it um, is, is one of our, uh, is, is one of the main causes that we're engaged in. So if people want to join, uh, please sign up to get updates and so that you can be part of whatever action we'll be engaging in in the future. So I see one more question here before we end. It's from Pablo Lopez, and I'll leave it open for uh, any other panelists who wants to take this one. He asks, does any of the panelists have an opinion on whether the United States' decline as a democracy may in a twisted way be beneficial to our self-determination? That's a good question. I mean, I think without a doubt, you know, the United States is uh, the democracy is in decline, not only within the United States, but um, internationally. It's unfortunate, but very true. Uh, But we can't be right. The the United States can't be fulfilling its its, uh, democracy when it has. Uh, subjugated people, right? When it has colonies, um, let's not even call them territories because territories is a way of kind of like really, you know, washing it over colonies. Um, and and so I think that there there is some aspects. And I think that, as I was saying before, um, some of the manifestations of that anti-democratic uh, the, the anti-democratic angles that the United States is engaging in is like the fiscal control board is an imposition, right? Is 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 a manifestation of that, and people are rejecting it. Say un rechazo completo against the fiscal control board, and so that does provide a window of opportunity, I think. So Melissa, since I have you here, we're going to go to our last part of this panel, and I'm going to go ahead and ask you if there's any call to action, is there any way that you want to uh, extend an invitation to the people watching about how they can be an ally to Puerto Rico? Well, I think being an ally, uh, definitely. As I indicated, we are um, working to build support for uh, HR 2070, which has over 75 sponsors at this point. But if you live in an area 
engaging with your elected official, with your Congress member, with your senator. There is a companion bill in the Senate as well that's sponsored by uh, Senator Menendez. So we need people that are willing to like, you know, get a group of constituents, ask for a meeting with their congressional representative and ask them to sign on to the bill. That's very helpful. So if you do sign up through Powerful Puerto Rico and say that you're interested in that, um, there will be some days of action that we're engaging in where we can ask you to join us and to ask for those meetings with congressional representatives and ask them to sign on to the bill. That's very important because there is discussion of possibly asking for a vote on these bills uh, late March, possibly into April. So uh, we are engaging and act actively engaged in, in that right now. Thank you. And Tiara, any ways in which you want to call on people uh, and give them ideas and examples of how they can be an ally to Guam? Yeah, I think uh, any of our listeners and watchers can um, continue to follow and support the community groups that have been here doing this work for a long time. I mentioned Independent Guahan as one organization. Pratehi Latex Save uh, Ritidian is another um, doing these direct actions. The dedication of our people to protect Guahan's cultural and natural resources isn't just for one island because we're all connected. So we really do need folks to sustain um, these conversations in these places that are seemingly outside of the United States, um, but so so heavily wrapped up and seeped in um, the issues with the, the budgetary decisions, particularly around the US military that impacts our land and lives. So I would just encourage folks to um, uplift those, those perspectives by looking at those organizations and, and educating um, themselves more and then continuing that conversation so we don't have to continue to have this conversation each time about the very fundamental issues that we're facing because so much of the time we spend just even telling people where we are or what's happening here, even though the decisions that are being made um, are happening without our consent and they have so much impact on, um, on the ability for us to continue forward with things like clean air, clean water. Um, and so I just, I hope that folks will continue these conversations so that the, the question of what happens in a colony or how to get out of colonial um, military control or things like that are not the ones that we still have to continue to have every single day. Thank you. And now I turn it over to Doris. How can people be an ally to American Samoa? If you're talking to us, you're muted. But if you can't hear me, then I'll turn it over to John uh, to ask you the same question. How can people be an ally to the Northern Mariana Islands? Um, well, uh, I, well, what, what all the, the colleagues have said on the panel, um, I think uh, moving forward, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be awesome. A strategic for us to create a, a unified website uh, where we put all of our issues, our fundamental issues, and plights, and 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 and, and visions, and design, and aspirations, and outcomes forward uh, with a call to action, a strategic roadmap uh, for each of us. Uh, and what are the, the 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 optimal choices and desires for each of us? I think first and foremost, we must maximize the digital uh, virtual platforms uh, available out there. Uh, in addition to that, we call to our residents, our citizens, our indigenous brethren, wherever they are in the world, uh, because in our national and in our Northern Marianas anthem, there's a, a, a phrase where it says, I will go and um, 
you know, educate myself and get exposed to the world. But we will never forget where we're from and that we will never avoid coming back home because that's where our heart is. Uh, and so um, reach out. Um, you, we, let's not wait until we are of age to finally decide that home is where we should be and where we should fight and where we should uh, advocate and, and make it sustainable for the future generations to come. Um, so yeah, reach out to all of our policymakers and our leaders, and as well, most especially our nonprofit organizations. Thank you, John. And Doris, if you can hear me now, how can people be an ally to American Samoa? I think the same thing, uh, we don't have enough uh, nonprofits that do this work, that fight um, to, um, to be self-determination or independent from the US. So it's just educating our next generation. I'm lucky to be in the school so I can educate kids, but I think even for myself is making a, an organization that is fully solely about um, being independent and um, sovereignty. And that's, and, and literally we don't have anything going on. So I think uh, this group is uh, going to be huge on the next steps of how we're gonna make sure that we can uh, stick together and fight this and, um, and learn from each other. So you can also follow me on Brown Girl Woke on Facebook, Instagram, um, Twitter, and uh, just all of us coming together and seeing what we can do. Thank you. And lastly, Summer, if you could answer the same question for us, how can people be an ally to USDI? Um, so first, what I would like to ask is that if you've heard any and all of the organizations mentioned, please follow them and like them immediately. That's one small act. Two, go to your circle of influence. Sometimes we think that this has to be really huge. But if you have five close friends that you can have a conversation with and raise awareness about something that sparked an interest here today, that's five more people that you've made visible the struggles, the opportunities, something for to pique a curiosity of them to be interested. Hmm, I didn't realize that was happening. And then lastly, when you hear of legislation or anything that's happening that affects everyone, bring us in. Ask, I wonder what this means for the U.S. Virgin Islands. I wonder what this means for Guam. I wonder what this means for American Samoa. And you can also ask your local representatives those questions, right? The more, if you were going to ask for yourself, just add us on as an and. We need more people raising voices, talking about us, making us visible, and adding us onto the story so we have leverage. Your influence and your voice and your concerns Really, they're very similar to ours. And so those are the ways that I think we can help. And lastly, I'm going to encourage you as an individual, take control of your own palate. Your food dollar is a vote. Eat as much local as you can, no matter where you are. Eat culturally relevant food. Teach it to your families. Post pictures of it on Facebook and Instagram, right? Reclaim your palate, reclaim your health, reclaim your culture, and use that as part of your voice raising with ours. Thank you so much, Summer, and thank you to all of the panelists. I think this has been a wonderful discussion. I, for one, have learned a lot. So I will encourage people watching us to share it, to continue this conversation. Uh, so that we can keep tackling these topics that are so important for all of us uh, living in the territories slash colonies. So thank you so much and have a good night, everyone.
Thank you all for listening to this special bonus episode. If you don't already, keep up with us by following at Paseo Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and subscribing to our Paseo Podcast YouTube channel. You can also support the show by leaving a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever the highest rating is on the app you're listening to this on. Leaving a five-star rating and positive comment really helps more people find the show too. See you next week for our interview with Boricua marine biologist Melissa Cristina Marquez. Until then, cuídate.